Scholars Podcast, a show dedicated to the proper lectionary readings of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. My name is Stephen Wedgworth. I am the rector of Christ Church. We're an Anglican church in South Bend, Indiana, and we are a member of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. Well, this week we are at the third Sunday in Advent, that preparatory season before Christmas. And this is a week that you'll notice the older prayer books, both the 1662 and even the uh, 1928, they differ from the modern lectionaries that are based on the Revised Common Lectionary. And this week in Advent, that's going to stand out pretty clearly. Most of the modern churches have that uh, interesting pink or rose-colored candle this week, and they're calling this uh, Gaudette or Gaudete Sunday, a Sunday about rejoicing. I've seen it explained that it's a break in the season of Advent. And that strikes me as a little curious because it's only four-week season. <laughs> I feel like we just got started, uh, so I'm not sure why we need a break. But in the older lectionaries, this is a different theme entirely. This week is when Advent really begins to focus on John the Baptist. The gospel reading is going to be focused on John the Baptist's preparatory ministry. And the epistle reading is going to speak about the role of ministers. So this is a John the Baptist Sunday for the older prayer books. It's also a Sunday dedicated to the ordained ministry, to bishops, to priests, to deacons, and especially to those who are pursuing ordination, because this Sunday also falls in what is called an ember week. What's an ember week? Glad you asked. There are four ember weeks in the older Books of Common Prayer. They match the seasons. So the idea is that you have an ember week uh, in the springtime, an ember week sort of a little bit later towards the summer, an ember week uh, in uh, the fall, and an ember week in the winter. Some historians think that these were simply seasonal fasts marking the cycle of the year. At a certain point in church history, they became associated with ordination. And so you fast and pray for those who are being ordained. The Ember week season in December starts on December 13th or after it, depending on how the days fall. And the 1662 Book of Common Prayer says that we are to fast and pray, especially on the Wednesday, the Thursday, and the Friday following December 13th. So I think for this year, December 13th being a Wednesday, means that we'll fast Thursday and Friday and then next week on Wednesday, which means that the Sunday in Advent is going to fall in the middle of that cycle. Now, you never fast on a Sunday. Sundays are always feast days, but that does give an interesting uh, feature, an interesting tone to this Sunday because it's going to be after we've already started thinking about ordination, we've already had a bit of that John the Baptist mentality and activity going, then this Sunday happens with its focus on John the Baptist and its prayers for ministers and ordination, and then you would have at least one more day next week to remind you of that. 
So it really drives home that this is an ordination-focused week, a week about ministers, about preachers, about prophets, and part of our Advent preparation our Advent discipline for this week is going to be focusing our prayers, our repentance, our fasting on both the creation of ministers and the proper response, hearing, obeying of the ministers and their message. So that's what we'll see in the collect for this week and the scripture readings. And so the third Sunday in Advent, uh, John the Baptist Sunday, ordination or ember week in Advent. I'll read the appointed collect for this Sunday and then discuss. O Lord Jesu Christ, who at thy first coming didst send thy messenger to prepare thy way before thee, grant that the ministers and stewards of thy mysteries may likewise so prepare and make ready thy way, by turning the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, that at thy second coming to judge the world, we may be found an acceptable people in thy sight, who livest and reigneth with the Father and the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Now this collect is it seems, original to the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. That means not only was it not a medieval collect, but it's also not a collect written by Cranmer and the first generation of the English Reformers. This is a collect that comes later, after uh, the Church of England has settled, after it's had its debates with the Puritans, after the Church is brought back, and the older Anglican arrangement of liturgy and ordination has been re-established in 1662. Uh, we're not sure exactly who wrote it. Some people think Cawson is probably the best guess. Uh, and it's clear that this prayer is particularly pointed at the Ember Week concept. This is someone who had been thinking about how to match this part of Advent with the seasonal Ember Weeks. That's suggestive that the two things had been distinct originally. So it's not like the Ember Week was chosen to match this week of Advent, but they were already existing probably uh, on their own. And so this collect is evidence of an attempt to harmonize and synthesize them, put them together, uh, make them make sense of one another, and fill out the overall seasonal match. You can tell there's an emphasis on the ministry because it starts off uh, asking uh, Jesus to bless the ministers and stewards of thy mysteries. So that's the goal. Bless our pastors, our clergy. But then it connects them to the messenger that Jesus sent to prepare the way. Now, who's that? John the Baptist. If you didn't know already, it will become obvious with the scripture reading. And it ties it in to the role of John the Baptist in fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah, but especially Malachi chapter 3. Malachi 3 says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. So that's John the Baptist. Jesus is going to say, 
John is that messenger. The fact that he's here shows that the time is near for the Messiah, and then by implication that Jesus is the Messiah. This collect also tells us what the messengers or the ministers will do. They are making ready the way. That's what John the Baptist is doing. Make ready. How? By turning the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, that at thy second coming to judge the world, we may be found an acceptable people in thy sight. So the theology of this prayer is that the ministers in the church today are still John the Baptists. They're doing that John the Baptist work, proclaiming the coming of the Lord, calling people to repent, to turn away from unrighteousness to obedience, to be ready. And when the Messiah comes, what is the description? Well, here Malachi. He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will set as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. A little later, verse 5, I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, who deprive the foreigners among you of justice. And do not fear me. So when the Lord comes, he will judge those who have participated in sorcery, witchcraft, and false religion. Those who committed adultery and perjury, those who have not paid the laborers, who have oppressed widows and fatherless, who deprive the foreigners of justice. And I think also here, because it's talking about uh, purifying the Levites, it's going to start with the clergy. God's judgment is going to fall on those clergy who, who themselves have committed these sins and who have not properly taught their people to repent of those sins and to avoid them. And so all those passages in the New Testament, where the Apostle Paul says, do not be deceived. Those who commit these sins will not inherit the kingdom. That's Paul carrying out his John the Baptist ministry. And likewise, then, we now in the church... I'm speaking of ministers, I'm a minister, we have to continue to preach that same message. This is why the current trend is so dangerous of de-emphasizing, of getting away from preaching specific repentance messages, not uh, naming sin. And this can be done in different ways. There's the liberal progressive movement, which just doesn't want to acknowledge sin or limits it to a very small subset. Uh, I was reading one book uh, by an ostensibly historic traditional Christian, but I, I think he was quite confused. And he essentially, the only sin that he could get upset about was someone voting for Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, everything else he thought could be covered in grace. 
Now, that's a little bit extreme, but it was a real case. Uh, many of the liberal progressive sets only have uh, a category for certain sins that they consider, you know, especially egregious evidence of someone who has power and is abusing others. And then they don't want to talk about uh, sin and repentance that might fall on people who are deemed to be the uh, underclass, people without power, people who need to be empowered. Uh, they don't want to talk about those sins. There's also the flip side. There's the conservative pastors who only preach about the outgroup, who, who only judge outsiders, uh, as Paul warns us not to do, uh, and they neglect preaching about the sins going on among their own people in their congregations. So limiting the range of sin to be preached about is one thing. There's also the contemporary problem of saying, well, we should really only talk about grace, only talk about forgiveness. Uh, this idea of preaching sin too specifically as legalism. And that can affect even good, otherwise orthodox uh, Protestant evangelicals. They can just shy so far away from this that they're only preaching good news, only preaching peace, joy, happiness, and there's no John the Baptist. They're feasting. They are living lives that are soft and raiment, even while professing to be believers, and I believe they are. But they've lost the ascetic element, the prophetic rebuke. Well, this week in Advent won't let us do that. There's no avoiding it. We've got to proclaim the full counsel, the whole message of God, and that starts with repentance. Prepare the way. And this is central to the pastor's job. The pastor is not primarily a counselor for family issues, a life coach. He's not even a community organizer or spokesperson to the culture in general. He's a prophet calling specific individual people to repent, to get ready, and to be ready for the coming of the Lord. The Messiah will judge the earth, and so you should repent. Well, the epistle reading then comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, this was already in the medieval lectionaries, and so you can see how the collect was probably constructed around the selections to match the theme of the Ember Week. And this is Paul talking about ministers. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing against myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time, until the Lord come who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and who will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. Now this epistle selection is striking in light of what I've just been saying, because it seems to be moving in the opposite direction. 
yes, you have to be faithful, but be careful in how you judge. Be slow to judge. Don't judge before the time. Paul seems to be arguing against too much judgment here, but I think it's about wrong judgment. In the context of 1 Corinthians 4, Paul is being judged by his rivals and enemies, people that don't want to listen to his authority. And if you continue to read the rest of the chapter, he actually uh, gives a soft sort of veiled threat. When I come, we'll see who has the power. We won't just be showing off with words then. And he says, would you rather I come with a rod? I don't think that's physical violence there, but I think rod is symbolic of power and authority, that when Paul shows up, he could pronounce judgment, uh, defrocking and excommunication, the function of his apostolic ministry. And so he's saying, do you want me to come and be nice and encouraging to promote love, to share in joy and fellowship? Or do you want me to come and to administer uh, my apostolic judgment against you? And by the way, you know I'll have power, the power of the Holy Spirit, chiefly. I think that's what's going on there. And so he's pushing back against a false sort of populism. People are saying, who are you, Paul? How are you in charge? We don't need to listen to you. And Paul's at some distance now, so the locals are able to turn the hearts against him. And Paul's warning against that, saying, hey, don't listen to their rumors, their arguments. They're trying to turn you against me. Uh, they've got complaints. I don't think any of them are true, but, you know, Paul says, it's not even my own judgment of myself that matters, but God's judgment. So perhaps here there's an argument about the authority of uh, the organizing, ordaining bodies to trust them rather than calling for some sort of immediate uh, popular justice, uh, reaction of the crowds against ministers. You know, trust those who have been placed in authority. If they are unfaithful, it will be found out. But I also think there's just a message of God's sovereignty here. We have to acknowledge our judgment is always limited. We don't know everything. We've got bias. We've got emotion. We privilege certain things and exclude others. People we already don't like, we're very strict against people we do like, we're accommodating, that sort of a thing. We should work against that. Justice should be blind. I think the work of protocol, jurisprudence, due process, it's all so important to protect uh, both those who are being charged as well as those who are owed justice and to protect them from the fickle ways of all humans our own predilections, favoritisms, and biases. That's very important. But of course, due process will often mean you can't get everything that you should get. Certain cases are too old. You don't have enough provable evidence on the table. It just can't be settled that way. And you have to accept that as well. The Apostle Paul says, uh, do not take vengeance into your own hand but leave it to God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. The whole point of that is you're going to have to wait on God. He's the one who will ultimately bring true justice. 
as John the Baptist would say, when the Lord comes, he will make straight the crooked paths. He will level the mountains and exalt the valleys. He will put everything to right. So while we need to seriously judge ourselves and repent and make sure we're being faithful, we also have to acknowledge the limitations of human judgment, what can't be done. We need to make sure that we're not going too far. We're not making errors in pursuit of justice. Every indignant person I've ever encountered believed themselves to be righteously indignant. But usually that was not the case. Now Paul also says that we shouldn't uh, judge before the time. So there are things that just need to wait. Hidden things. This is a complicated topic. Uh, I think it ties into you know judging outside of your jurisdiction. Don't judge outsiders. I think it also means just dealing with stuff that is best left private. Now you can abuse that kind of a rule. I'm not saying to use that to further the sin, to continue the abuse, uh, to hide and cover up. But it is just true that sometimes you can do a lot of damage by going back and trying to fix things that can't really be fixed, uh, trying to dig up old things, trying to bring out to public things that don't have to be public. Um, that's why it's so important, Jesus says, to, to deal with the person who offended you directly first. And so there is an element here of how we pursue justice and judgment to be careful not to do more harm in the pursuit of justice uh, than we ought or is, should be done. And again, allowing some things to lay, to sit, and wait on God to sort them out. But when God comes, Paul says, the hidden things will be brought to light. All that was in the dark will be shown, and the counsel of our hearts which we think we know, but we're likely deceived, that will also be made manifest. And there's a sort of a terrifying aspect of this, too, because this is a message of total judgment, the last day. He shall come to be our judge. Who will stand? All of our arguments and explanations, all of the things we use to justify what we do to others and ourselves, they're not going to work with God. And so the message of this week is also going to have to take us to the cross. We've got to cry out for mercy. Have mercy upon me, O God, a sinner. We've got to repent from our hearts to be honest about our own failings and shortcomings where we have willfully sinned even repeatedly in our lives. We've got to ask God to forgive us. Yes, we must make every attempt at repentance, amending our lives, living in charity, but we know that we're still dependent on God's grace, his mercy, and the work of Christ. And so the prophet must proclaim the law and the gospel, pointing people to Jesus. 
Now, the gospel reading comes from St. Matthew, chapter 11, and this is the interaction of the followers of John with Jesus. John's already in prison at this point, and it says he heard in prison the works of Christ. He has sent two of his disciples. Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? So John the Baptist is sending his people to Jesus, saying, Are you the Christ? Doesn't John know the answer to this? I mean, didn't John baptize Jesus? It's one of those questions. <laughs> I think John knew. I think he's doing this for the sake of his disciples and for the public ministry. What's interesting is when John's disciples ask the question, Jesus starts off by talking about himself. Yeah, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to him. So all the things that are supposed to happen when the Messiah comes, those are happening. So yes, Jesus is saying, yes, I am the one to come because look at what I'm doing. But then Jesus uses this opportunity after having explained who he is and what he's doing to talk about John. So the prophet and the fulfillment of prophecy, they go together, they reinforce one another. And Jesus says to the multitude concerning John, what went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. So Jesus here is saying, Yes, I am the Messiah. You can judge by my works. And John is the promised messenger, the fulfillment of Malachi and others. John is a true prophet. So as Jesus is extolled and magnified, so too are his messengers. Now what do we learn about John? Well, he's not a, he's not a soft man, is he? He's not shaken by the wind. He doesn't change with the, the themes of the day, the cultural messages with what's popular. That's clear by his lifestyle, isn't it? He lives out in the wilderness. He's ascetic. He's got a hard message. It eventually lands him in prison. Now, why is he in prison? It's important. It's in prison because he said that uh, Herod shouldn't have taken this other woman to be his wife. He committed adultery and shouldn't have done it. So preaching a moral message to the person of the magistrate, that's what landed him in prison. He wasn't afraid to do that. And Jesus says his clothing, that is John's clothing, is hard. It's not soft. He's not a man of luxury. And I wonder, when we're thinking about how this connects with the clergy, how do we apply this? And I don't think that clergy have to walk around in sackcloth and ashes. I mean, Jesus had a robe after all. Uh, these things can change, but I, 
I do think there's got to be a message here that the clergy don't need to be defined by or perceived as luxury men. You got to be careful here. I know it's easy to step on toes to get out of line, but what does this mean? If we're John the Baptist people, we've got to have this message, but we also need to be careful that we're not luxury people. We shouldn't look like we're overly rich. We certainly shouldn't be decadent, overeating, being drunkards, that sort of a thing. We shouldn't have a soft lifestyle. Pastors, I think, are always going to have a position of esteem in the religious community. Uh, probably people will be inclined to give them gifts. Pastors should dress fairly nice, just as a sign of respect. But I think the pastor should be careful. Uh, maintain that serious, sober, humble, grave aesthetic and mindset. Because we've got serious business to do here. And this has to be defined by both what we say and how we live. And so this week as the ministers are preaching repentance to the people, the ministers have to preach to themselves that their life and doctrine might be consistent, that it might speak the truth, that it might help point people to Christ. And of course, Having a sober and grave appearance and demeanor is not meant to draw attention to the sobriety and the gravity of the demeanor, but rather to point away from ourselves and to Christ. And so that's got to really be the final conclusion. The minister doesn't point to himself. He doesn't draw attention to himself. He points to Christ, to the gospel. And so over this week in Advent, that too must be a theme. Faithful ministers proclaiming the prophetic message point to Jesus. We must decrease so that he can increase. And as people see Jesus, they should turn from the world put away their sins, and be ready for his coming. Now, our Old Testament readings come again from Isaiah, the first lesson for morning prayer on this Sunday, and the first lesson for evening prayer on this Sunday uh, are from Isaiah 25 and 26. I'll discuss these together because they are consistent, largely talking about the same thing. And this week, both of the chapters have to do with vision, a vision of life after the Messiah's judgment. So last week, uh, the message was focusing on the judgment being done, that apocalyptic end times activity. And now we're getting a vision of what's after that, what things are like. The Messiah has come. God has judged. And Isaiah 25, 2 says, You have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. But this is good news. 
You have been a stronghold to the poor, to the needy and their distress, a shelter from the storm. God has defeated the powerful and the wicked, but he is a defense for those in need, his people. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. We have a marriage supper. Joy. And then what happens? He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil spread over all nations. Something was holding the people's back, keeping them in the dark. That's going to be taken away. He will swallow up death forever. It's Isaiah 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. And so God brings salvation. No more death, no more sorrow, no more fear. God will rest on this mountain with his people. Verse 9, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So Advent, waiting on the Lord. Don't judge yourself. Don't go too far. Just be ready for when he comes. And this is what it will be like when he comes. He puts away our enemies, saves us, and then we are glad and rejoice. And in verse 26, we have uh, the song that we will sing. In that day, this song will be sung in the lands of Judah. We have a strong city. He set up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. We rejoice. We celebrate for what God has done. The proud have been laid low. The poor rejoice. In verse 7 and 8, talk about the paths of the righteous, the judgments. Verse 9, when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. God fixes things. He makes it how it ought to be. It goes on to say that the lords of the nations are futile. They cannot raise the dead, verse 14. And even we can't do it, verse 16 and 17. In distress they sought you. They poured out whispered prayer like a pregnant woman who rise and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth. So were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed. But we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance on the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. So not only is it a complaint that the 
other nations, the kings, they couldn't do it. But even we, that's Israel, that's the covenant people, in and of ourselves, we're crying out, we're in pain, we're expecting, but we can't make anything happen. But God can. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. So this is a resurrection point here, which ties Advent in not only to preparation for Christmas, but all of our life is an Advent season in preparation for the second coming, the judgment of Christ, the new life. We're crying out in pregnancy pains right now, and the final deliverance will be resurrection. And so we wait on the Lord our whole life. Waiting, anticipating, trusting. We can't do it all right now. We can't have instant success. We can't make anything happen. It's a message clergy have to hear. You can't make it happen. You can cry out and teach people, but you can't make them. You can tell them to repent. You can't repent for them. You can long for justice, but you can't necessarily make it happen. You certainly can't bring new life to the dead. Only God can do this through Christ. And so we wait. But we will not be disappointed. Because we know God's word is true. And that vision of the end, that's so joyous, so comforting, it's got to be continually set before us now so that we can hold on to it. And that can give us the ability to persevere through this life. So the third week in Advent, John the Baptist time, expectation time, prophecy time. Get ready. Repent. Get your lives in order. Hear those who proclaim the message. Support them. Pray for those who will be ordained. But don't try to make anything happen in your own strength and power. Don't judge too soon. Don't go beyond your bounds. Don't overstep. Don't think it's in your hands. But rather, wait on the Lord. Trusting him and knowing that he will come. Well, thanks for listening. This has been the third week in Advent for the BCP Proper's podcast. My name is Stephen Wedgworth, pastor of Christ Church in South Bend, Indiana. Thanks for listening and tune in again next time. 